are confronted face to face with someone who had committed unspeakable evil against you. What would you do in that moment? Corey Ten Boom and her family once lived a peaceful life in the Netherlands until the, the war broke out. And the Ten, Ten Boom family, of course, stood up against the Nazi regime and began hiding Jews in their home until eventually they were caught. They were split up. Her father was sent to one concentration camp, and Corey and her sister uh, Betsy were, were sent to a Nazi concentration camp called Ravensbrück. And there in Ravensbrück prison, she learned that her father died. There she endured unspeakable horror and abuse. There Corey watched her beloved sister Betsy die after the mistreatment of Nazi guards. Before Betsy died, Betsy encouraged her sister Corey to forgive her Nazi oppressors. Corey refused. But after the war ended, Corey was released and forgiveness felt a little easier. But forgiveness, of course, gets harder up close. Eventually, Corey was traveling across Germany, spreading the message of God's forgiveness to war-torn Germany. And one particular evening, she was teaching in Germany about forgiveness when a man came forward to speak with her. And Corey recognized him as one of the Nazi prison guards at Ravensbrück Prison, a man that she said was one of the most cruel guards. Corey wrote this about that interaction. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good is it to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea? And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He wouldn't remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him. And the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he, he did not remember me. But since that time, the man went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out, will you forgive me? What would you do in that moment? Christian, what would God require you to do in that moment? If you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21, where we see this powerful parable that Jesus tells, a story that he tells about forgiveness. 
Uh, just to remind you of the context of this chapter, so far when we began the chapter, we learned that if we are going to follow Jesus, we will be selflessly committed to the holiness of his people. You remember that? It's not enough for you to care about your own holiness. If you're going to follow Jesus, Matthew 18 begins by challenging us, we've got to care about each other's holiness. And last Sunday, in the middle part of Matthew 18, we learned that that includes confronting and pursuing one another when we're caught in sin. Now, dear brothers and sisters in this room, let me remind you that if you are faithful to follow Jesus in those first two areas that Matthew 18 talks about. If you're faithful to follow Jesus in caring about each other's holiness and confronting and pursuing each other when we're caught in sin, I can promise you this, you will get hurt. Maybe not the way that Corey Ten Boom was hurt in Ravensbrook. But if you faithfully follow Jesus in community with his people, you will be sinned against. So what should we do in those moments when we come face to face with those who have sinned against us? In our passage this morning, Jesus teaches the Christian that we must forgive because we've been forgiven. That's the main idea, the big idea I hope you'll get from our passage this morning. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Forgiven people are forgiving people. If you have been forgiven, then you will be forgiving. However imperfectly, you will fight and scramble and learn to forgive. As we study our text together, I want to answer with God's help three questions about forgiveness so we might grow into the forgiving people that God has saved us to be. Question number one, what does it mean to forgive? Question number two, how can we forgive? And question number three, why must we forgive? Let's begin with question number one, what does it mean to forgive. I think perhaps for many of us, the answer to that question seems obvious, but the truth is there are many myths all around this topic of forgiveness. There's all sorts of things that people believe about forgiveness that aren't necessarily true. So we're going to bust some of those myths in a moment, but first I want to give you a definition of forgiveness, show it to you from the text, and then we can talk about some of those myths. So here's my definition for forgiveness. Forgiveness is a costly decision to release a person from the sin debt they owe you. Forgiveness is a costly decision to release a person from the sin debt that they owe you. Peter and the disciples knew that forgiveness was a costly decision, which is why they're probably feeling pretty confident when they come to Jesus and ask him this question in verse 21. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, Jewish tradition, the rabbis in that day taught that you were supposed to forgive someone three times for the same offense. If they did it the fourth time, it's kind of a three strikes and you're out sort of situation. You don't have to forgive them anymore. And so Peter is coming to Jesus kind of with extra credit. 
He's gone the extra mile. Jesus, perhaps he's expecting a pat on the back. Jesus, if we forgive seven times my brother for the same offense, is that good? Jesus' response to Peter, of course, is a little bit less than flattering in verse 22. He says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, if you grew up in, uh, on the King James Version or the New King James Version, you might have, or perhaps your Bible in front of you says something like 70 times seven. This says 70 times or 77 times, rather. Uh, I, I, had to, I had to use my calculator, but 70 times 7 is 490, and 77, of course, is 77. And so what's the answer? Which one's right? Is there some sort of a contradiction here? I need to remember that your Bible, it was actually recorded, the New Testament, first in Greek. And in that original language, did you know that in Greek, the same wording could actually mean either one? It could be translated rightly 77, or it could, 77 times, or it could be rightly translated 70 times 7. So which one is correct? You know what the answer is? We don't know, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know why? Because Jesus' point is not that you forgive up to that number and then stop. Jesus is not saying that what each of us need to do is we need to get a little notebook or something, and we need to jot down every time, you know, get tally marks, and every time they sin against you, you write it down, and as soon as you hit 77 or 490, whether you're a KJV or an ESV sort of person, you stop. That's not his point. Jesus picks this massive number to make a radical point. Forgiveness doesn't have a limit. Do you see why this is a costly decision? By the way, I think perhaps one of the reasons why it's so hard for us sometimes to forgive the repeat offenders is because we haven't really released them from the sin debt. Oh, we said, I forgive you. We, we made up somewhat. But in the meantime, we kind of kept a record back here in the back of our minds, and don't you do it again. And so when they do it again, and they inevitably will, it's harder to forgive because we haven't really forgiven. Forgiving is releasing a person from the sin debt that they owe you. It's significant that in the story that Jesus tells about forgiveness, it's a story about debt. First, there's a king who releases his servant from a massive debt. We'll talk about that debt in a little bit. And in the second part of the story, that forgiven servant finds a fellow servant who owes him a much smaller debt and requires payment on that debt. Here's the thing, brother, sister, friend, when someone sins against you, you can do one of two things. You can release payment by forgiving them, or you can require payment. When you require payment on that offense, 
Maybe it's something like it's dwelling on the offense or unnecessarily withdrawing from the relationship or gossiping about that person or slandering them or plotting some sort of revenge. You can either release that person from their debt against you or you can require payment. And let me just challenge you, dear Christian, it's been said that bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting everybody else to die. You're going to require repayment, and who are you going to hurt the most? It's going to be you. So forgiveness is releasing a person from the sin debt that they owe you. It's choosing not to hold the offense against them. It's absorbing the blow yourself. That's what forgiveness means. And now we hopefully got a handle of that. Let's bust a few myths about forgiveness. Here's one. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Uh, maybe you're in this room and you're thinking about a particular situation th that you know you need to forgive a person, and you're thinking, I can't forgive because I don't feel like forgiving. I can't forgive because I still feel angry or hurt. Or, or maybe the flip side is true for you. Maybe you've convinced yourself that you have forgiven that person because you don't feel anything. You're numb to the situation. But forgiveness is not a feeling. Often feelings follow, but forgiveness is first and foremost a decision. It's a decision not to hold that sin against that person. The truth is you can be numb to a hurt you've experienced and still not really haven't forgiven anybody. Or you can be hurt and even angry about evil that was done and still forgive them. Because forgiveness isn't primarily a feeling. Also, forgiveness is not forgetting. How many times have you heard that old saying, forgive and forget, right? Forgive and forget. Maybe you think this morning that I can't forgive because I can't forget. The Bible never commands you to forgive and forget. Never. Now, you're told not to keep a record of wrongs. You're told not to hold it against the person. But you can't forget it. Uh, Ken Sandy, in his really helpful book on biblical conflict resolution, puts it this way. Forgiveness isn't a matter of whether we forget, but of how we remember. It's not a matter of whether you forget of how you remember. Are you remembering that sin against that person and holding it against them? Or have you released them of the debt that they owe you? Another myth, forgiveness is not excusing. Uh, forgiveness is not saying when someone says they're sorry, well, that's okay, or it's no big deal, or you didn't mean to, or it's all right, or it's fine. Uh, we'll talk more about Jesus' parable in a moment, but both the forgiving king and the unforgiving servant release someone from a rather large debt. When you forgive someone, you are releasing them from something that is a big deal. Any sin against you is a big deal. Dear Christian, 
even the unchristian, the non-Christians in this room, you are made in the image of God. And a sin against one of God's image bearers, he does not take that lightly. He values you. He treasures you. You are his creation. It is not a, a minor offense. C.S. Lewis used to say, you have met no ordinary people. So forgiveness is not excusing something like it's not a big deal. It's really doing the opposite. Forgiveness is saying, we both know that what you did was wrong, but since God forgave me, I'm going to forgive you. I'm not going to hold it against you. And finally, forgiveness is not acquittal. So in court, when someone is acquitted, the court is finding them to be not guilty. All the legal consequences are forever removed, right? You don't have to pay. You don't have to go to jail. There's no fine, whatever. You've been acquitted. Forgiveness does not mean that all the consequences have been eliminated. You forgive a person, you can still and may still need to press charges, especially if it's something that could hurt others or hurt the offender. Uh, you can forgive someone and, and still may need to talk to the elders because that individual is, you're concerned that they need spiritual help. Uh, consider last week's text on church discipline. Uh, you might be ready to forgive someone, and yet you still walk through the church discipline process because that person has not yet repented. By the way, it's significant that immediately after that passage about church discipline comes this passage about forgiveness. The only churches where church discipline really works the way that God intends are churches that freely and frequently forgive. We have to be forgiving people. But forgiveness is an acquittal. It's not completely off the hook. Notice one more thing about forgiveness from the text before we begin answering our next two questions. Forgiveness is offered over and over again. Perhaps, dear brothers and sisters, one way to assess how connected you are to your church family is how often you've had to forgive the same person in your church for the same offenses committed against you. Notice Peter says in verse 21, how often will I forgive my who? Brother. This is primarily meant to be about relationships within the local church. So let me ask you again, how many times, church member, have you had to forgive someone in your church family for the same offense over and over. Maybe you're thinking, well, I've never had to do any of that. If that's you, then either you belong to a perfect church, which is not PBC, because I'm here, or, or you are successfully keeping everyone so far away from you that you never get hurt by anybody. The deeper we are connected in the life of the local church, the more likely we are to get hurt, the more frequently we'll need to forgive. So, you might think that's really, really hard. 
If you're feeling that, if you're thinking that, you are right. But Christian, hear me. This is not an option. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Question number two we want to ask from our passage this morning is how can we forgive? How can we forgive? In verses 23 to, 20, uh, to 34, Jesus tells us this story uh, and helps us to understand how it's possible for us to forgive. Let's start in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. So here's the gist of the story. There's a king who's doing some bookkeeping and he notices that one of his subjects owes him a ton of money. The text says that he owes him 10,000 talents. A talent, by the way, is not like our English word talent. This isn't a, a special skill or an ability. It was a unit of currency. So uh, in Jesus' day, a talent was the am amount of money that you would make in about 20 years of work. All right, so get your thinking cap on for a second. What's 20 times 10,000? Somebody good at math. I need some help here. 200,000. This debt is a debt that could not be paid unless his subject were to work for 200,000 years. Now, if you wanted to have a little fun and think about how much your debt would be if it was you, just go ahead and calculate your annual income, multiply it by 200,000, and that's the debt. If we just use the median household income in the, US, in the U.S. today, it would be about $14 billion. That's the debt. Massive debt. Why does Jesus tell the story that way? Jesus is inviting us, he's encouraging us to be forgiving people, and he's inviting us to think about two things. Number one, we need to think about our sin. Think about your sin. Have you figured out the point of the parable yet? Who represents the king, or who does the king represent? It's Jesus. And who does this servant with a massive debt represent? I'll give you a hint. It's everybody in this room. All of us. Do you believe, brother, sister, friend, that the debt that you owe God is that great? I think sometimes we struggle to really grasp how serious our sin is against God because we forget to look at the standard. We compare ourselves to everybody else. I'm not as bad as him. I'm not as bad as her. If you knew what she did, what he did, then you would think I would be a pretty good person. What we need to do, what the Bible repeatedly challenges us to do, is to stop measuring ourselves against each other, but measure yourself against the standard. 
Think of it this way. Most people, when they see a speed limit sign, don't necessarily slow down. Maybe if you're driving in Pocosin, you might. But everywhere else, you're not going to slow down. But what about when you drive past one of those speed limit signs and it shows the speed limit, 35, and then it shows right below it, you are driving, and it's like 86. Okay, I better slow down a little bit, right? What happened? What happened? You're no longer measuring, comparing your speed to the other cars on the road, but to the standard, right? So too, God invites us through his word to compare our sin debt, not to what he or she owes, but to the standard of God's word. So what's the standard? Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Is that your conduct, friend? Do you look at those verses and say, oh, that's me? Think about all the ways that we don't measure up to that. We do things that we shouldn't do. We don't do things that we should do. We do the right things in the wrong way. We do the right things for the wrong reasons. Or we do the right things in the right way for the right reasons, and then we get proud about it, feel pretty good about ourselves, and that's a sin too. This is no minor deal. Our sin debt, Jesus' point is that your sin debt is so great that 200,000 years of perfection couldn't pay it off. So how can thinking about your sin help you forgive others? Here's the unforgiving servant's problem. He's obsessing over the debt that he, owe, he, he is owed and has forgotten the debt that has already been forgiven. The same is true for every follower of Jesus struggling to forgive. Show me a Christian struggling to forgive, and I'll show you someone who has forgotten how much they have been forgiven. Maybe you say, well, you don't know what he did to me. You don't know how bad it was. You're right, I don't. But I do know what your sin and mine did to Jesus. And I can guarantee you this, you will never have to forgive someone more than what God forgives those who trust in Jesus. So if you're struggling to forgive, think about your sin. And number two, think about the cross. And notice how the king responds in verse 27. Out of pity for him, for the servant, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. If verse 27 doesn't shock you, I'm not sure that you're paying attention. Think about it. A 200,000-year debt. And this master releases it. Can you imagine ever releasing a debt like that? You see why we said forgiveness is a costly decision? In the parable, for the king to forgive this debt is to, for him to lose out on a massive amount of money. 
course, the story is pointing to a heavenly reality. So what cost did King Jesus pay to forgive you? Uh, Maybe that's a strange question. Maybe for some of you, you're thinking, well, doesn't God just have to forgive me if I ask? Isn't it God's job to forgive everyone who asks him? I'm going to challenge you, dear friend, that is not true. Think about all of the recent debates in our country about student loan forgiveness. All right, you've probably read something or seen something or heard something somewhere about student loan forgiveness. Now, the point is not wherever you land on that issue, but if you've heard anything about it, just canceling the debt of all these millions and millions of dollars of student loans, you have to at least think through what's the biggest obstacle that some people have. The biggest concern that some people have is, well, what do you do with the debt? I mean, debt is not something that you can just kind of wave a magic wand and it disappears. It has to be paid somewhere by somebody. So what do you do with the debt? The same is true with your spiritual debt, friend. God cannot and will not wave some sort of a magic wand and voila, your sin debt is gone. Something has to be done with it or he's no longer holy and just and righteous and true. So how can God forgive our debt? Really, there's only two options. You can try to pay off the debt yourself, like the unforgiving servant in the story. Notice in verse 26, he says, I will pay you everything. But here's the the laughable part of verse 26. Paying off that debt would require 200,000 years. And so too, dear friend, if you try to pay God the sin debt that you owe him, it would require something like 200,000 years of good works and sin-free living. Anybody want to sign up for that? And even if somehow you could manage to live for 200,000 years, guess what you would do? You would add to your debt, not decrease it. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but the Bible suggests that even in hell, the wicked are adding to their sin debt. That's why it goes on forever, because they never stop shaking their fists at God. So that's option one, and I guarantee you it won't work out for you. You can try to pay it off yourself, or you can trust someone to pay it in your place. Listen to Colossians chapter 2. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. How did Jesus forgive us? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How do you do that? By setting it aside, nailing it to the cross. Here's how you can be forgiven, friend. There was the Son of God who lived a life without sin, zero sin debt. And yet he died to pay the penalty, to pay off the debt for every single sin of every single one of his people who will repent and believe. How can you be forgiven? Because Jesus paid it all. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, let me ask you, have you received that forgiveness? You can receive it today. 
not by working for it, but by simply crying out to him, confessing your sin, and asking for him to forgive you, to save you. By trusting that God really sent his son, Jesus Christ, who really lived a sinless life, really died a sinner's death, and really rose from the dead so that whoever believes in him can have everlasting life. You can do that today right where you sit, friend. If you do, would you talk to me or one of the other pastors before you leave here today so we can celebrate with you and help you follow Jesus? If you're in this room and you're a Christian, if you're struggling to forgive someone today, let me ask you, are you thinking about the cross? Think about what Jesus paid to forgive you then ask yourself why you're unwilling to pay a much smaller price to forgive your neighbor. Christians are the most forgiven people in the world. Therefore, we should be the most forgiving people in the world. Now, frankly, brother, sister, friend, we could really stop there. We could really, you know, here's what it means to forgive and here's why we should do it. Really, we've said most of everything that we need to say, but Jesus, in his kindness to us, knowing how hard it is to forgive when we've been sinned against, gives us one more question to consider. Here's the question, question number three. Why must we forgive? Why must we do this? After the king forgave his servant, notice what happened next in verse 28. But when that same servant went out, and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So the servant that was forgiven 200,000 years worth of debt finds a coworker who owes him some money, and instead of forgiving this man who owes him a much lesser amount, he throws him in debtor's prison. Now, I've heard Bible teachers before, I think they, they mean well, but they've tried to explain this story like this, you know, refusing to forgive somebody else when Jesus has forgiven you is like, demanding payment on 10 bucks when Jesus has, pay, has paid a $10 billion debt. I don't think that's the most helpful way to think about this part of the story because the, the debt that this second servant owes, although it's nothing like 10,000 talents, it's still a reasonable debt. A uh, hundred denarii the, the second servant owes, that's not a small amount. Most people in Jesus' day earned one denarius a week. So this is roughly, um, this is 20 weeks of labor. Imagine someone stealing half of your paychecks for a year. Most of us, for most of us, that would be a really big deal. Forgiveness Genuine forgiveness is almost always hard. One thing we shouldn't do in the church is act like forgiveness is easy. It's always hard. 
It's always hard, especially if you're going to forgive without limits the way that Jesus describes here in this story. Jesus' point is not that the servant shouldn't have cared about the 100 denarii, but that 20 weeks' wages is nothing compared to 200,000 years' wages. If you've been forgiven of the massive debt that you owe God, then you will labor to forgive the much smaller debts that others owe you, even if it feels to you relatively big. But it's nothing compared to the debt that's already been paid and forgiven. Forgiven people are forgiving people. What if... You refuse to forgive. What if you're hearing this, you say, I, you, man, you just don't know. I can't. I won't forgive. If that's you, dear friend, I hope that you'll listen to Jesus' words beginning in verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him, that's the unforgiving servant, and said to him, you wicked servant, I I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then Jesus concludes with a warning, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you will not forgive, you are not forgiven. Jesus is not teaching us that we are saved by how good we are at forgiving. He is saying, if we are saved, we will grow into forgiving people. If you will not forgive, you are not forgiven. This, by the way, is no isolated teaching. Jesus repeats this throughout his ministry. Listen to Matthew chapter 6. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Or Mark chapter 11, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Forgiveness is the fruit of a forgiven heart. Maybe you're thinking, well, I'm a Christian. I I prayed a prayer. I got baptized. I'm a church member. Uh, Let me just remind you, dear friend, that it is possible to be deceived. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If you're truly forgiven, you will be forgiving because that is the will of your Father in heaven. Maybe you're thinking, well, how do I know? Here's how you know. Forgive. Forgive. Forgive that person for that thing that was done against you. Maybe your immediate reaction is, I can't. I won't. 
then you will in time give evidence that you were never truly forgiven. But if you say, God, help me, I want to. Please help me to want to forgive. Help me to take that first step towards forgiveness. This is hard. Talk to somebody. Let me talk to a sister or a brother for help so that I can forgive. Then you are giving evidence, dear beloved, that you belong to Jesus. Because only a Christian would forgive like that. Because forgiven people are forgiving people. Corrie ten Boom learned that firsthand when she stood face to face with that Nazi guard that night in Germany. The man had publicly tormented her and her sister Betsy, and now he has the audacity to ask for forgiveness. Here's what she wrote next. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out to me, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. Jesus says, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your, your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust out my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former Nazi guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. Maybe you're struggling to forgive someone right now. Can you just pray what Corey prayed? Can you pray? Jesus, help me. Can you pray, God, I'll lift my hand. You change my heart. Maybe there's somebody you need to talk to after the service today. It may not be easy, but it will be worth it. Believer, you can and will forgive because like Corey said, it's not your love, but the, the love of Christ working in you and through you. In just a moment, we're going to remember that love as we celebrate communion. I'm going to remind the parents one more time when we stand to sing in just a moment. If you've got kids in nursery, to go pick them up so that we can all take the Lord's Supper together. But as we take communion can I challenge you, don't merely look at the physical bread and the physical cup. Look beyond them to the love that they represent, the love of Jesus that gave his body and blood so that your debt can be forgiven. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow. Would you pray with me?
Father, we thank you for the gift of your beloved Son. 